In Romans 6, 1-14, the Apostle Paul confronts believers in Jesus. If you believe he died and rose again to forgive your sin, then you are to use each part of your body as an instrument that plays God's song instead of sin's song. What does your body say to others about your life commitment? Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurzen, for the discussion titled, True Body Language. As I've been talking to some of my friends, a lot of them are doing the Little League thing. Anybody been going to Little League sports during the spring? You know, you rush from one ball game to the next. Well, Joe was at his son's final Little League game. His son was playing at a highfalutin league where it's all select teams. And his son, Joe, was only 12 years of age, but he threw an over 80-mile-an-hour fastball. In fact, because he was a 12-year-old that was throwing that fast, nobody even touched the ball during the whole season. The kid had no hitters all the way through it. In the championship game, it came down to the bottom of the ninth, two outs, and one guy got walked. His son, Joe, walked one of the, one of the players on the other team, and so the guy's on first. Two outs. And he's got a one-run lead. And Joe's father's sitting there, you know, and he's just proud of the peacock man. His son's incredible. And his son rears back, goes into his windup, and he throws that patented fastball. It comes in a little bit over 80 miles an hour. It's a little bit high. And I want to share something with you. You might have a really good fastball, and one of the things about a fastball is all you need to do is stick the bat out there sometimes. And if the guy's fast enough, it still goes out of the park. And man, this crazy batter hardly even had his eyes open, swung and barely connected, but it was coming in over 80 miles an hour and boom, out of the park. Joe, you know what it's like, Dad, when your son just blew the whole game? Joe in the car just blasted his son. Man, he just took him up one side and down the other, just totally blasted his son. You ever done that? Fathers, you know in your heart, I just shouldn't do this. But in the heat of competition, and when you want something so bad, and actually all of us know that when you're trying to relive the glory days that maybe you didn't have as a dad, you just blast your son and cut him down. And Joe in the back seat was getting lower and lower in his seat, and he was destroyed. Well, like every good father, when Joe got home, he felt really guilty about blasting his son, so he went to the refrigerator, and so he took out, you know, a cold one, because, you know, when you feel guilty, you know, maybe a little bit of ethanol will solve some of the problems, so he drank one of those cold ones. About two hours later, he realized he didn't drink just one cold one, he drank the whole six-pack. Then he really, really felt guilty and needed to get away. His wife was climbing down his throat because he had drunk too much and he wasn't quite with it. So he decided to go to the movies and he should have known better from the rating, a little bit of really hardcore violence. And there was only a few scenes of nakedness. And the story was relatively good. So for about two and a half hours, Joe was able to forget all about cussing out Joe, forgot all about his wife yelling at him for drinking too much. And for two and a half hours, he just escaped. He left the theater, and he needed a good jolt. He went by uh, the Majestic, and he went in and got a good Jack Daniels. And before he got home, he poured uh, about three shots of Jack Daniels. And when the police pulled him over, 
he was just with it enough to cuss the policeman out. And he didn't walk the line very great. Now, ordinarily, Joe would have made it to church on Sunday morning. Because, you see, Joe received the Lord when he was a little kid, just like a lot of you. In fact, he was baptized as a kid. In fact, he's a good Texas boy. He knows Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus rose again. And Joe really made a commitment for Jesus. And then he publicly confessed that commitment to Jesus. So usually, Joe would get it together even after a week like that and a bad Saturday. Usually by, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock Sunday, he could tank down enough Starbucks coffee that he could come to church and he would function. As, you know, everyone, you know, one of those, you know, people that go to church. And there he was. Well, this Sunday was a little bit different. He got up and he was in uh, the county jail. And so instead of going to his own church, he was sitting there, like Corby was telling you, in the bunch of, with a bunch of other inmates because his wife was too mad at him to come and pay the bail. So he was going to spend Sunday in jail. The chaplain got up. And the chaplain began to speak, and he said, if someone looked at the way that you lived your life over the last couple days, if they, looked, if they listened to what you said with your tongue, if they watched what you did with your hands, if they watched where you went with your feet, what would they conclude, who would they conclude is in control of your body? And Joe didn't have to scratch his head very much. And that's the question I want to ask you this morning. In other words, if I took a video camera, like we're in the day of reality TV. So let's suppose that we traced you during the week with a video camera. And we videoed all that you do. And then we're going to pray the camera. And we're going to, we're going to evaluate together. We're going to just have your family evaluate who's in control of your life. You know, what, what would we say? That's what the Apostle Paul wants to deal with. As Paul wrote... To the Roman believers, he was concerned about their body language. We live in a society where Americans do everything for their body. I mean, we've got artistic surgeons that cut on your body. You rub oil, youth-producing oil on your body by the gallon. We go to gyms and exercise with our body. Well, Romans 6 begins to talk about what do you as a believer do with your body? And just so you really understand the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about body, doesn't just talk about this this body, like my hands, my mouth, my feet, but it's your personhood that's now living in this present time where you express yourself through a body. Let's think about that pretty extreme, and yet maybe it's not as extreme as I might want to think. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Because as the Apostle Paul has been telling us, the Apostle Paul is saying that if Joe, when he was a little boy, really trusted Jesus and he believed that Jesus died on the cross for his sins and he believed that Jesus rose again from the dead and he wanted to receive the new life of Jesus and he invited Jesus to come and live in his life, then Paul has been teaching us, then just like that, he moved out of Adam's realm a realm of death. At the end of chapter 5, we were talking about two races of mankind. One in womankind is those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. The Apostle Paul is saying that in Adam, we're controlled by sin. And in Adam, when you give God's moral principles, like, you know, thou shalt not get drunk, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, thou shalt not have wandering eyes. If you look upon a woman to commit adultery, you've already done it in your heart. 
what Paul told us last week is that in Adam, when God gives us that revealed instruction, instead of it delivering us from sin, it actually makes us want to sin more because our nature is perverted. It's corrupt. But when you come to know the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul says that we're born into a new race of, of human beings. We're born into the Christ. And he's saying that, that we become a new creature. Now, as someone to listen, like in Paul's Sunday school class, it would really probably be a Sunday night class in the first century, as Paul traveled all over the Roman Greek world, someone raised their hand and said, Paul, if I follow your logic, because if you look at the end of chapter 5, Paul made an incredible statement. He says that where sin increased, where sin increased, and we all know, how many of you would agree that sin is increasing in the world? Anybody ever worried about that? How many would agree that, man, where sin is increasing? So we can all agree with Paul, but look what he says. The Apostle Paul says in verse 20, it says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, this is in Romans chapter 5, grace increased all the more. So someone raised their hand at this point and says, Now, Paul, let me follow your logic. Your logic goes like this, that, that there's been many sins in the world, and and. Adam began sin in the garden, and then for hundreds and really thousands of years now, sin has been multiplying like a, a moral AIDS, an, an infectious virus that gets worse and worse and worse. But what you're telling us is that Christ's free gift of salvation, his grace, his unmerited favor, that Christ died for us when we we're yet sinners, what you're telling us, Paul, is that Christ rose up, and the more that sin increased the more powerful grace became. So the smart aleck in the class says, well, then let's follow the logic. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go out, if I sin a whole lot, and if I really rebel a whole lot, and if I just trespass a whole lot, then that's going to bring incredible glory to God because that will make his grace increase. Doesn't that make sense? That's the question that's raised. Your teenager, parent, listen really hard, because I guarantee you, one of your teenagers, especially in a rebellious state, will come up with that question. And that's the question the Apostle Paul raised. Look at the beginning of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's a question we want to raise. If we're saved by grace, then, then shouldn't Joe, didn't it bring great glory to God for Joe to cuss out his son? Didn't it bring great glory to God for him to get drunk? Didn't it make great glory to God for him to lust after a woman doesn't belong to him? And doesn't it make great glory to God for him to, to be sinning? Because that means God can pour out his forgiveness upon him. It's kind of like you're a teenager. And mom and dad go away down to Lake Whitney and for a little break. And they say, now, son, you know, you're 17 years of age. We really trust you. And you've been a great son. You know that we love you as a son. And we're just going to trust you. We're going to be gone just over Friday night. And we're going to be spending the the night in, in Lake Whitney. And we trust you. You've got the house to yourself. So the son, about 6 o'clock, gets on the phone, invites all of his friends to come over, and they just have a drunken bash. 
They get some of the older kids that just came in from college at the summertime to go over to Majestic, and they load it up, and they, they just get plastered. There's a little bit of drugs mixed in and everything. The police raid the place, and when the parents get called at 3 o'clock in the morning, come running up from Lake Whitney, they say to their son, you know, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, your forgiveness and your grace is so powerful that I thought I would really honor you by giving you a whole lot to forgive. Something's wrong with that, isn't it? Something's wrong with that logic. And that's what the, why the Apostle Paul says, heavens no. That's really what he says. You look at the next verse. Shall we sin so that we can have God's grace increase all the more? And the Apostle Paul, before he goes into an argument about why that shouldn't be so, he begins by saying, by no means, what he, actually, what he says is absolutely not. And he wants you to feel the absurdity of that. If you have decided to follow Jesus, if you decided to trust him, then it's totally absurd to feel that I'm just going to live in sin. I'm going to keep disobeying the Lord. And what Paul's going to go on is he begins by saying, you've got to see the absurdity of that, but now he's going to go on and explain to us how in the world do we as a believer really overcome using our body for the passions that will destroy us? Are you concerned about that this morning? In other words, if you are the child of God, as you sit there this morning, you are either using your body in ways that build God's kingdom, and you're using your tongue, you're using your hands, you're using your eyes for ways that that produce God's kingdom in your kids. If you're a kid, you're using your body for ways that encourage your parents to move them to love Jesus all the more. As you go out into a secular society that doesn't know Jesus, the Lord envisions you being his tool in his hand to cause others that when they see what you got in Christ, you're like a magnet that pulls them to want Jesus. But for many of our lives as believers, that's not so. Why? Because number one, we've forgotten That when we trusted Jesus' cross, the Apostle Paul teaches us that we were joined with the power of that cross. So the very first thing that I want you to think of, that like in the song, I've decided to follow Jesus, we say, the the, the world behind me, the cross before me. Remember that verse? The world behind me, the cross before me. And what I've noticed is, I've been, because I've been raised in this, a lot of kids that I was raised with have the idea that they've got a new life in Christ and they've got a fire escape that's going to get them to heaven, but they're going to have a really good time until the Lord calls them home. And the basic idea of their heart is that they, they, they don't really need to be delivered. In fact, they're really sad that they've lived in this nice, righteous, you know, Jesus environment. Because out there is where all the action is. You know, Paris Hilton has found out where the action is. And, and, and people that can go up to New York and really enjoy all the clubs and all that stuff, those would be extreme expressions of what we here in Midlothian and the surrounding area in Ellis County, we practice that as a culture in kind of a subdued way, but it's all underneath the surface. What does the Apostle Paul say about that? How should you live the believer if you really believe that Jesus died for you? Look what he says, and he begins, first of all, in the first few verses, talks about Jesus' death. He says, by no means. We died to sin, past tense. The moment that you trust Jesus, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us that we were joined with Christ. 
And what it teaches us, when Jesus died, he took my sin and he took your sin in an incredible way. In Corinthian, the Corinthian letter of the Apostle Paul said, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So I admit my cursing tongue. I admit my immoral eyes. I admit my wandering feet. I admit my arrogance and my selfishness. And Jesus sucks all of that incredible rebellion against his father. When we were Jesus' enemies, Jesus died for us. And the Apostle Paul is teaching, and this is something you need to get a really hold of, from one standpoint, God the Father, the moment you trust him, God the Father can speak in the past tense that when his son died and when you chose to trust that son's death, God the Father united you with the son. In fact, it uses the word here that you were knit together with the son and you died with Jesus. And what that means is that your old Adamic side, that old sinful nature that has a tremendous potential and power of sin, and you're held in sin slavery, you have been set free from that. That's what it means, we died to sin. And because God can look at the past of my life, the present of my life, and the future of my life all at once, he declares that David died to sin, that you died to sin. And that's one of the great truths about your relationship with God vertically that you really need to get a hold of. When you trusted Christ, if you genuinely trusted Christ, Paul declares, we died to sin. Now, if you die, if you die, then it follows, how can we any longer live? And the idea is, if we died to sin, how can we still keep living in this dead world? That's the idea. In other words, you used to live in this world. You used to be controlled by this present life. You used to be controlled by the passions of the flesh. But when you trusted Jesus, the Apostle Paul is saying that he created a new identity inside of you. And your old identity outside of Christ was crucified with Christ. And it follows from that. Therefore, if you died with Christ, how can you any longer live in sin? Because you are supposed to become a new creation. That's his point. Then he goes on and says this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death. The Apostle Paul focuses in this verse on the early experience of believers. Let me just explain what happened in the first century church. We're from a lot of different backgrounds from churches, okay? A lot of you are from Roman Catholic background. A lot of you are from Methodist background. You were sprinkled and you were dedicated as babies and you were baptized as babies. A lot of you are from Baptist backgrounds where you were dunked. Let me go back in the first century and share with you a little bit about what the early church, what happened in their ritual. Because the Apostle Paul can assume as he writes to the Roman church and he hasn't been there yet, that they've got a common ground of experience. First of all, when you hear the word baptizo, which is the Greek word for baptize, they don't think in terms of like, when I mention the English word to you, you think in terms of like you're a Presbyterian, you think in terms of being sprinkled when you were young and your parents sprinkled you. And that was your baptism, okay? And that's true of some of your other baptists. If you're a Baptist, you think of being dunked all the way under, all right? 
I want you to understand that if you, if you were just Greeks and Romans and you heard the Greek word baptizo, it's a word that does mean to immerse. And that doesn't mean that it always needs to mean that, but that's the literal meaning of the word throughout the culture. When you hear the word baptizo, it means like to take a piece of cloth and you dunk it completely in the dye that you want to immerse it in. That's the idea. So that's something that we need to really keep in mind. And to be honest with you, there's no place I can go in the New Testament to say this is exactly the ritual of baptism that they went through, that they dunked them forward three times, that they dunked them backward three times, that they dunked them in, in flowing water, they dunked them in pools of water. To be honest with you, there's no place I can go in the New Testament, unlike the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, almost all the rituals, I can go to detailed passages that tell you exactly how to do it. Under the new covenant, God doesn't do that. So don't get into religious ritual because you've been set free from that. Don't fight over how much water you use or whether you pour it on your head or your hands or your feet. And don't become arrogant about it because you've been set free from all that. But I do want to give you a picture. One thing I know for sure is one is that the Lord Jesus, when he was alive, when his disciples said, we want to rule with you in your kingdom. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I drink? And can you be baptized in the way that I will be baptized? And the Apostle Paul picked up on the ministry of John the Baptist, and Jesus related his death to baptism. So one thing that all believers, I don't care what, whether you're from Roman Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, I don't care what you believe, one thing you should really nail down is that in the early church, when Paul mentioned, don't you know that those have been baptized into his death, something that all the Roman believers would get is that when they trusted Jesus, that they were joined, they were united with Jesus' death. And one of the things that would happen that's very important, for example, I can give you in the book of Acts, when the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? The apostle Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then it goes on in the book of Acts that he went on and explained that further. And then it says the Philippian jailer that night and all of his household believed in Jesus. And what it said in the book of Acts is they were baptized. As Americans, you make a big distinction between what you believe inside and what you do externally. For example, in Midlothian and the surrounding area, it's no big deal for a kid to be baptized. If all of their friends are baptized, when you're 12 years of age, if you haven't been dunked yet, if you're from a Baptist culture, you need to get dunked. And it might not have anything to do with what you believe about Jesus. It has a whole lot to do with all my friends do it. That's what you're supposed to do. And it's very similar. I, was, I told you, I was raised with a bunch of Roman Catholic kids. All of my Roman Catholic baseball buddies that played games like Joe, you know, the kid that was pitching, I played hour after hour like that, and half my friends that played with me were Roman Catholic, and I got news for you. They cussed, and they got angry, and they, they, they were tempted to hit each other often, and sometimes I did. But they were all dedicated as babies. And a whole bunch of them went through... The catechism, and they were, they were inducted into, their, into church. They fulfill, and the, and the sacrament to have mass every week, especially after they cussed all day Saturday, my buddies went for early mass Saturday night so they could cover all the bases. 
What the Apostle Paul is saying is that's not going to cut it. Baptism is not just this external thing. That's why the New Testament doesn't explain so much the ritual. Because the Lord Jesus said that something far more important happened, that you were united with Christ. Now, I personally believe it's a very powerful picture to dunk someone all the way under. And what I want you to understand is that one thing I know for sure, when a person trusted Jesus in the early church, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And when they trusted Christ, something happened. Like Paul will say in Romans 8, if you don't have the Holy Spirit then you're none of his. In Galatians, it says, how did the Holy Spirit come upon you? It happened when you believed, and then it says that there were powerful things that happened in their life, and 1 Corinthians 13 is one of those powerful things that began to happen. Where there wasn't any love, now there's love. There was one thing I want you to know that in the first century, Paul can assume that when people trusted Jesus, that they would publicly affirm it, and they would be baptized, whatever that water ritual was, And they would also know that the Spirit of God came to live in their life. Now, the New Testament doesn't have a set way that the Holy Spirit reveals himself. But one thing I want you to ask yourself, as you're living today, does the Holy Spirit ever evidence himself in your life? And if he don't, bad English. But if he doesn't, then maybe you need to find out whether you've ever really gone to the cross. I'm really serious about this. Some of you from backgrounds, maybe you spoke in ecstatic languages. You know, pagans spoke in ecstatic languages. In fact, I've been with all different kinds of groups that speak in tongues. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've been to the cross. And I've been with Baptists that have been dunked three times and four times But I'm still not sure they have the Holy Spirit. Because nothing's happened. And that's what I want you to understand. I know for sure that when I was a little five-year-old kid, something happened. And I didn't jump up and down, and I didn't do backward somersaults. But I remember, I went, like when I was about six, to a guy that was dying. And as a little six-year-old kid, I remember, I need to try to talk to this guy about Jesus. And I'm only six years of age. The guy might die. My parents had told me the guy's dying. And I remember the little six-year-old kid, man, I need to try to talk to this guy about Jesus. So I did it, a little six-year-old kid. I told him how Jesus died for him. And I told him how Jesus was risen from the dead and, and that I loved him and I wanted him to receive Jesus. I found out later from members of his family that little six-year-old kid left and he received the Lord Jesus before he died. And what I'm just sharing is that this Holy Spirit inside of you is a real thing. Like, my gift is teaching. And that's pretty obvious. You know, that's what the Holy Spirit's given me. But what I want you to know that, that as I get ready for this week, the Holy Spirit does lay things on my heart. He talks to me about things that I need to talk to you about. And it's very real. It's connected with the Bible. And that's true. Every one of you, if you really know Jesus, the Apostle Paul can assume that when you receive Jesus that you were baptized into him. And the, the most important thing he's talking about is not whether you were water baptized, but were you spirit baptized in the sense that, you're, that you received a new life. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that don't you know that all of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And that's why we do dunk someone all the way underneath. 
Like I often say to the little kids that are baptized, I often say, what would happen if I held you underneath the water for 15 minutes? And they kind of grimace and they say, I'd be dead. Well, it wouldn't even take 15 minutes. The little kids kind of grimace. And so water really is a place of death. When you receive the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul is telling us that we were joined with Christ and our old nature was crucified with Christ. That's our standing eternally with God. What's important is that the Apostle Paul is going to go on this passage and talk about, but we're living in this in-between time right now. And what he's telling us is that we need to live in the in-between time remembering what we have happened when we were saved and what's going to happen when the Lord called us home. Look what he says. We were therefore buried with him through baptism of his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I want you to assume that the Apostle Paul is assuming that when we trusted Christ, we were not only joined with his death, and I think as believers we put a lot of stress on Jesus' death, we need to put just as much stress upon the new life and the power of his resurrection. As a born-again believer, you're not just looking back to the crucifixion of Jesus, but you're also looking to the resurrection of Jesus. And the beginning of that resurrection, like Jesus has already been raised, and the beginning of your resurrection should be happening in the new life that you live now. That's what Paul explained in verse 5. In verse 5, he begins to focus on the resurrection. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old sinful nature, that's the old person we were born with in Adam, it was crucified with him. That's what we've been talking about. So that the body of sin, and that's the idea, that the body of sin is the same thing as that old self, the sinful nature, and it's this body, this old sinful body. It's not that this flesh is evil. It old body of sin just means you outside of Jesus before you knew him. And then it expresses itself in what you do with your body. The body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. I want you to really understand, and the Apostle Paul is going to build on this as we go on in the passage, is that, that the Apostle Paul envisioned if you live outside of Jesus and you live outside his control, rather than you being free, you're really a slave. So if you're a Christian kid and you say, like, so what real freedom is is not to grow up and get to be 18 and you've been raised so you've never drank. Like Joe, I like talked about Joe earlier. You said, Dave, I've never drank even one of those. So you go away to A&M, become an Aggie, and you got your hair cut exactly right, but a bunch of your friends drink like fish on Friday night. And so as an evangelical kid, you think freedom is to be able to drink. A whole bunch of kids from Midlothian do that. That isn't freedom. This is freedom. Freedom is, I don't have to drink. And I'm not uptight about it. In other words, Jewish people, like, and I'm not uptight, like there's some people I'm with that can drink one, and that's all they ever drink, and I'm not uptight about it. But I'm really not a slave to it. And I'm also free. Like if I'm from an alcoholic family where I look back through my family tree and I've got a dad on both sides and a grandfather that struggled with alcoholism, then I'm totally free. I don't have to try it. Like I don't have to play Russian roulette and put shells in the thing and pull it on my head. I'm totally free that I don't need ethanol to have peace. 
And I don't have to prove anything to anybody because my body is free. Does that make sense? And I don't have to lust with my eyes. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You take your besetting weakness. The Apostle Paul is saying that that's in this realm of deadness, we become slaves. Jesus has set us free. And one of Satan's biggest tricks is to communicate, especially to young people, that real freedom is found away from Jesus when the only freedom there is is with Jesus. And one of the things I want to get across to you is that I'm not teaching you Bible church culture or Southern Baptist culture or Presbyterian culture or Roman Catholic culture. I'm teaching you Jesus. And Jesus is the most awesome, incredible, powerful, good, healing, forgiving, merciful. I can go on and on. He's the incredible Lord. He has the power today. Every single one of you can have Jesus come to live inside your life. He's the only man that's ever lived that has resurrection power. And that's why the apostle drives his message home. Look what he said. He said, now, if we died, we believe we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die any longer. Death no longer has the mastery over him. The death he died, he died of sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, this present body that is going to die someday. Don't let sin rule during this time of your physical life so that you obey its evil lust, is the idea, its evil desires. Do not take the parts of your body and offer them as, as, as instruments of wickedness. Instead, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. Let's drive it home. What does Joe need to do? The chaplain at the end of the message in prison that Sunday morning says to the inmate, who's been controlling your mouth the last couple days? And Joe's thinking. And the chaplain says, Jesus gave you a new tongue when you received him. But you need to decide, because Jesus is going to give you a responsibility. You decide whether you believe. When you go to cuss out your son, and I want you to know, like, I've been there, Dad. I got three sons, and all of you that know me well, I'm very competitive. In fact, when I was a little kid, I would cross over the line, and, and I would want to kill you if I could. I want you to know that over the years, the Lord's given me a new tongue. And it very, very seldom, every once in a while when I hit a bad shot in golf, which is often, my tongue can slip. But even there, what do you do? You say, Lord Jesus, you gave me a new tongue. I don't have the power to control my tongue. I don't have the power not to cuss. I don't have the power, even worse, not to cut down my Mary or my, you know, or my members of my family. I don't have the power. That's what grace enabled you to do. But Jesus, I believe that you created a new day. So I want you to control my tongue. And that's a choice every one of you can make. Dads, if you explode all week long and your tongue cuts people, Jesus has the power. He has the resurrection power. And he wants you to reckon yourself dead to that old use of your tongue. Your eyes, if you, have, if you have eyes that wander, 
then sin masters your eyes. You're a slave. And instead of looking at women as your daughters, as your sisters, as your mom, looking at the one woman that God gave to you, even if you're a young man, you live in a culture that says it's perfectly legitimate for you, and the girls even dress so that you can be attracted to them. And girls, the scripture is saying to you, like, what do you use your body for? Who do you dress for? And what this pastor is saying, that there was a time when I believed that the meaning of life would be to be able to have a man want me. That, they, that my identity would depend upon having all different kinds of men relate to me and want my body. That'll be the essence of life. Ladies, that's not going to be the essence of life. Ask the older women here. I've dealt with tons and tons of women that have had multiple relationships, and they haven't found identity. They found uneasiness and pain and suffering and rejection. And they even hate sex now because it brought them so much pain. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Sin destroys us. And this morning, you've been set free. And that morning in prison, Joe heard, you don't have to live under the control of your sin nature. What have your feet been doing? So I want to ask you that close this morning. What about your life this past week? You know, some of us are like Joe. We received the Lord when we were a little kid. And we really know that we trusted Christ as our Savior. But like Joe, we've kind of fallen into a pattern where we don't reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. And so if we're honest about what we do with our hands, what we do with our feet, what we do with our mouth, it's not that we're dead to sin. We've been allowing this smelly corpse to express itself. Yesterday in prison, Tim came up to me. He said, why isn't your older brother in prison with you playing? I said, well, he's up in Minnesota. He's getting ready because my nephew and my niece and their three kids are going to go to Indonesia as missionaries. And Tim said, well, Dave, I'm committed to missions. I'm going to pray. In fact, I just read Operation World, and I've been praying for Indonesia. I just read the section on Indonesia, and Tim said, Dave, I want you to know I'm going to pray for DJ and Claudine every single day that the Lord will open up the Sundanese people, a new people group that need Jesus. And I'm sitting there going, here's a guy in orange inmate clothes. And he says, I went to Laterno with your brother Ron. And I was a missions major. Now what happened? And Tim told me, he says, I started offering the instruments of my body and I started having a body language and instead of singing God's song, I started singing my own song. And it went from one step to another step to another step. And he said, here I am. And he said, in 18 months I get out of here, but I'm so glad the Lord put me here because this is where I came back and I gave my body, my present life back to Jesus. And I believe that there's some of you out there that are like Tim, not that extreme, but I think that I've been speaking to some of you today. I think the Lord's been saying, hey, I've been using my tongue and it hasn't been the resurrected power of Jesus. It's been a corpse of the old sinful nature. And this morning, I want to make a public stand because as the chaplain gave the opportunity, the inmates that were enslaved by their sin were invited, come on down. And Joe got up, and he went down, and he said, I want to, I want to publicly confess that I decided 
that I'm going to really live in the resurrected power of Jesus. And I think one of the greatest needs among some of your lives is that you come Sunday morning and you say, oh, yeah, I've decided to follow Jesus. But you really haven't in your daily life been reckoning yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. 